0: Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? My name is Alex Withrow and I am joined by Nick Dostal. We are best friends and filmmakers and film freaks. And today we are gonna talk about our favorite movies that are based on plays. How you doing there, Haas?
1: Oh man, I'm doing good. I'm really excited about this one. I remember you uh you talked to me about this idea and I couldn't have been happier because uh, being an actor, doing a lot of plays. That was how I got my start. I love theater. And so it's a very interesting conversation to have too. So this is this is going to be fun. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And this is a topic that kind of happened organically from this podcast because we had mentioned plays a lot. We had mentioned Mike Nichols in some previous episodes. So we just thought, why not open it up? Um, we're going to talk about five movies we like each there's no order to these they're not ranked in terms of preference or they're not chronological it's just what we like and we're going to give a few reasons as to why we like them so i'll jump in and i right at the top i'm going with glengarry glenn ross written by david mamet won the pulitzer in 1984 one of my favorite scripts of all time he wrote the screenplay james foley directed the movie comes out in 92 it's just I don't know what else to add to the conversation of Glengarry that hasn't already, but it is it's a towering force of a movie that never, ever gets stale or old to me.
1: It's an astounding piece of work. And it's funny because um, that's that was the first scene I ever did from when I started out acting in college. The first scene work that I ever did was uh, was Glengarry Glen Ross.
0: Which speech, though?
1: It was a scene. It was a scene between um, Shelley Levine, so that was um, Lemon, and his scene where he's talking to um, Al Pacino. Yeah. And, and I had no idea what I was doing, but you had to trust the language. And in the play, because David Mamet is such a specific playwright and screenwriter where all of those uhs and ums and ers and ellipses – you have to honor those. Those are thoughts. Those are intentions. Those are full of life. And so when you see those on the page and you see these actors doing them on the screen, that's just, they're just sticking to the writing. And that's what David Mamet wants. That's what he wants. <laughs> More that's than what he, anything. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's what he requires. And his words are like poetry to me. I certainly know his cadence and his rhythm is not for everyone. But um, Okay, question for you about Glenn Gary. Who gives the best performance in the film? Baldwin doesn't count. His character wasn't in the play. It's designed to steal the movie for 10 minutes. So you got Pacino, Lemon, Ark, and Harris. Uh, The other one we don't talk about as much anymore. You can really make a strong case for all of them. I think Pacino is the most volcanic and has the most, you know, occupies the most attention. But I mean, has Lemon ever been sadder? Like, it's just all four of them are perfect.
1: Perfect casting. And and he, we we've never seen Lemon like that, and so I think in a lot of ways maybe I would give it to him because of that. Yeah. And this is probably something that I'll say throughout this podcast, but it's just a testament to the writing. Right. It's it's hard to to be bad when you have that type of material, and when you've got actors the caliber of, I mean, God, Ed Harris, Pacino, Lemon, Spacey. If I'm thinking about it. You know, I, I don't. I love Pacino in it, though.
0: I know it's impossible. They're all, they're all so good. Well, maybe a topic for another time. What about you? What's your first?
1: So my first one is uh, the Birdcage. Nice,
0: good choice.
1: And I know that there's a, a little bit of um, because it was based off of a play, and then it was based off of a movie, and everything like that. So there is a little bit of like a, a, a skewed history as to how we get the Birdcage in terms of its. Origination as a play, but I wanted to talk about this one because there's just way too many aspects of it from a filmmaking standpoint of how do you actually make a good adaptation from a play, and I think a lot of it comes down to um, blocking, I think a lot of it comes down to um, obviously the characters, and in this movie you just get a, a perfect recipe for all of that, There there is not one dull moment. There's not it's it's perfect comedy. That's what I kept thinking when I was re-watching I go, this is everything what that comedy is supposed to be. And um for my money, I don't know if it gets any better than the culmination of that last scene. Right. Where the Gene Hackman and Diane Weiss come in and it like you know chaos ensues. That's theater. That is a comedic farce. Entrance and exits those are staples of farces for theater. Right. There's actually a rule in theater um, for farces where in comedies, you always have five doors and people are always always exiting and entering. And uh, that scene in particular does it really well.
0: And I, I was glad you picked that one because we have a lot of heavy films that we're going to talk about. And that's not one. It's light. It is by the great Mike Nichols, who we're going to be talking about a lot, I suspect, this episode. One of the best ways uh, for me to judge if a movie based on a play is good is if I can't tell it was based on a play and I don't know if I never knew or if I just forgot but I forgot this movie was based on a play until we started talking about it and then you think about it and you're like oh yeah that okay they do spend a lot of time in that set and that set but he moves it and it's paced so well and well okay that's a great choice I was just getting ready to talk about staging and blocking and that's a perfect way to transition to my second pick which is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf Directed by the great Mike Nichols. His first movie, 1966, based on a play by Edward Albee in 1962. I just don't know if acting gets better than this or staging, especially for a first-time director. It's fucking insane that it was his first movie and he kind of got it because he was friends with Burton and Taylor and he just... I was was actually watching it this this morning. I was re-watching it and there's a lot of interesting things about this movie because... One of my biggest criticisms about movies based on plays is that the staging is very stuffy and you're very trapped in and you're like, you're not getting any breathing room, even if the movie calls for one or two locations. And with that stuffy staging can come very claustrophobic cinematography, which may not always work well. Yeah, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is the only film we're going to talk about today that won the Oscar for Best Cinematography. That is incredibly rare for a movie based on a play. And it just goes to show you how much thought was put into it in every aspect i mean from elizabeth taylor being 32 years old playing a 56 year old to it's just it's a it's a master class and and real quick i have to say this um if you want a clinic in staging framing directing performance film 101 listen to the mike nichols and steven soderbergh commentary track on who's afraid of virginia wolf dvd or blu-ray it's one of it's a top ten. It's one of the great commentaries. You can learn so much from it. I'm a big fan.
1: <laughs> that that is awesome. And you know, it's funny that you mention um, Elizabeth Taylor being 32 playing an older woman because that is such a theater thing to do, right?
0: And that's why they had to shoot the movie in black and white because it couldn't be in color because the makeup wouldn't have looked good. That's what Nichols
1: said. I didn't think when I first saw that, knowing a lot of Elizabeth Taylor's work, that. Um, She could pull that off Mm -hmm. because that is a very, very dramatic, heavy piece. And all four of those actors, they just kill it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, what do you have next? Continuing on the Mike Nichols train, I really think that Mike Nichols um, was the best director at adapting a play into a film. He's done it way too many times. I mean, this is a man that worked his entire life as a director in theater and film. He he just figured out how to do it, and this to me is my personal favorite adaptation of any play into, made in, in, into any movie. We're going to go closer. Hell yeah. For anyone who listened to um, our first podcast, uh, this is in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. I saw this movie when um, I was in my very formative years, and I was learning with acting, And um, over the course of time, I have seen productions of Closer done all over, some good, some bad, mostly bad, to be honest. I don't think you'll ever beat the movie. That's just my opinion. That's just a hot take. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there haven't been great productions, but when I think about the tone, the writing, this movie, the performances by all four of those actors... I'll just never see anything different. And that is a thing with film is like we we see that in our head. But when it's as good as this is, I I don't know if I'll ever I, I I'm I welcome the challenge for a play to come around a production of closer that makes me say, holy shit, this is better than the movie.
0: Yeah. And good luck with that, because, I mean, this is 2004 formative time for me, too. And that it's just shattering. The movie shattered me. I hadn't. I hadn't really heard really stars of this caliber, and this is gonna bring me to my question, talk like this. No one had heard Julie Roberts talk like this before, and it was like, Yeah. Wow. So this this brings me, and we've talked offline about this, but question for you. Rather famously, Kate Blanchett was signed on to play Anna, but she had to drop out when she became pregnant. Julie Roberts took over the part, so is Closer better with Kate Blanchett? Let me make a case. I, I I'm not I'm not really going pro or con yet, but here's Here's where I'm at. Blanchett, Law, Portman, Clive, they were all more or less in similar places in their careers. Clive Owen probably wasn't as famous, but you know, in the following years, the women would go on to win Oscars and some of their careers would really take off, but they were not the most famous movie star in the world, which was Julia Roberts. So when that casting was announced, I was like, uh, this is just going to, just going to outshadow them. I don't know if this is going to work. And, um, her argument with Clive Owen completely erased that, and I think it's the best work Julia Roberts has done. I stand by that. I've said that for a while. Um, so a different movie with Kate Blanchett, maybe a little bit more uh, restrained. Maybe she would have played a little more reserved. I don't know, but I'm fine with it the way it is. That's my take.
1: I agree. Um, I mean it's it's all speculation. Who's to say? I mean, it's not like we we wouldn't have gotten a great performance from Kate Blanchett. Um, but I think because that personally for me, is my favorite Julia Roberts performance. She went places that I didn't think that she could go. Mm-hmm. And I think that, to me, is also one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever, is the fight scene between her and Clive.
0: One of the great arguments just in film, and I've said it a lot on here, I'm a big fan of movie arguments, and it just it gets it right. I love that one. Great choice. Never get old. Okay, next one for me is Amadeus, 1984, Milos Forman, Best Picture winner. Um, This one was really important for me to call out because it goes back to what I said about the birdcage. I genuinely had no idea this movie was based on a play until I was researching this podcast. And I went, "Uh, wait, what? And then I rewatched it uh, two weeks ago. Solari's hospital room is a big, large part of the setting, and the whole narrative is framed around that. And I started seeing, like, oh, yeah, a lot of it does take place in this apartment, or there's that grand staircase that they probably built a set for. But by and large, this movie is big, and this movie fucking moves. Because for a three hour, stuffy 80s biopic, you do not hear me recommending those a lot. This one cooks. It rewrote history. It is not an accurate representation of the time it depicts. Everyone was okay with that. Everyone talks in their native accents, so, like, no one's on the same page. I mean, the, Mozart's talking as an American. You know, F. Murray Abraham's British, so it just works. It's He used the same form and used the same energy he had in Cuckoo's Nest and Hair, frankly, and put it into this,
1: and it works, and I love it. So much of that shouldn't work. And, you know, one of the most interesting questions and themes about this particular podcast is what makes a play work as a film? Mm Because a lot of times, in my opinion, most of the time they don't. Correct. I agree. And that is an example of one that should not work. It shouldn't. and, and And even for the length, for the director's cut being three hours long, you don't feel that. I've been in you know, plays that have, like, in a, as an audience member, they've only been an hour and a half, and you're like, oh, my God, when is this going to end? And so to sit in a three-hour movie that feels like a play like that to be completely engrossed. Definitely. Um, speaking of plays that um, completely work in the film format that almost shouldn't in a way, uh, I went with The Raisin in the Sun. I, I, I watched this movie for the first time, I think, probably when I was in high school. I I probably was just too young to really appreciate for what it was and what it was talking about. And this movie was made in 1961, an all-black cast outside of a few white people. And um, the themes and questions and conflicts that it raises are still happening today. It, It was baffling to watch and in that way to kind of think how far we've come in so many ways and how not far we've come. This is a play. This is a movie that takes place pretty much in one location. So we are stuck in this house, this one room. I never felt like we were here for too long. I never got claustrophobic. Not in uh, not in the way of an audience member feeling like ah, I I I I'm bored. And that's because I think the star of this movie, besides all the the great actors, the writing. Mm-hmm. The writing of this play and and this movie, that's what keeps you engrossed. The writing is so good. And one of the coolest things that I picked up from this is that everybody's right. Every character in what they're trying to do and what they're trying to say, they're right. And then in that, they're all wrong. And that's just beautiful. That's conflict at its absolute best
0: yeah absolutely um interesting you saw this for the first time in high school i saw this movie for the first time a week and a half ago never seen it before only watched it because i mean i've been wanting to get to it watched it because you picked it holy shit like it hits deep i agree with everything you just said it's very troubling and very problematic to see how little has changed and you know me i'm we are both such oscar freaks um for whatever reason but i was watching it And my immediate thought right away, because Cindy Poitier, there's no question for me, this is his best performance. And he is going for broke right away. And he is angry. He is mad. He is ferocious. Not how we saw him very often. Yeah. So I'm watching this and I'm going, man, he must have had good competition this Oscar year. Like, who the hell did he lose to? And the movie didn't land a single Oscar nomination for anyone, because in addition to him, Ruby Dee is perhaps never better. Mm -hmm. And then two years later... He wins. Poitier wins Best Actor for *Lilies of the Field*, a film I adore. But he's he's great in both films. But *A Raisin in the Sun*. It's just it's shocking that that movie wasn't honored. Or, I mean, it's not really shocking because you know.
1: And and it's cool about that movie too, theatrically speaking, just because it doesn't shy away from it being a play. Like the scenes where so Sidney Poitier is so big in that movie, mm-hmm. and like him dancing on the table. They are not shying away at all from like, let's have it be like a play. And that's a bold move and it works.
0: So my next one, I purposely picked something shamelessly entertaining that I'm not afraid to admit that I love. There are much more distinguished and, you know, noteworthy plays to pick here, but I am going all in on A Few Good Men, written by Aaron Sorkin, original. Their play was written in 1989. The film's by Rob Reiner released in 1992 I, i'm keeping my thoughts on this movie brief because the only thing i really want to touch on is that a movie based on a play can be entertaining as all hell mm-hmm. this is an insanely rewatchable movie it i don't really know anyone who actively dislikes it it just works it's fun it's sarcastic i love it but i want to dedicate the majority of this conversation to you because you actually have a really interesting kind of anecdote about this play specifically as a theatrical production.
1: And this is just my opinion. I just have to say that. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, work on this play um, as the play, as an actor in it. Uh, I remember reading the play and just thinking, this doesn't really work, in my opinion. It just, to me, I was thinking, this is a case, in my opinion, where the movie is a far superior product than the play.
0: Yeah, you told me that... You were like, you know how many times the location changes in the movie, like they're in the barracks and then they're talking in the office and they go down to Guantanamo and then they're back in the barracks that it changes that many times in the play as well. And that to me is like, that's way too much action going on on stage. You're losing. I would feel I, I haven't seen it, but I would feel like you would lose. The rhythm of the text by constantly changing the setting
1: and it, I mean it doesn't change quite as much but it, it very frequently to the point where it, it does sort of feel like that and um, it's also when I watch A Few Good Men I really do feel like this is a perfect movie yeah in a lot of ways like everything works you've got the characters the story it's compelling it's thrilling and when you finally get to that end um, that's an earned moment, you know, for, for both characters.
0: That's a great way to say it because, you know, I'm I'm trying to think whenever I've, if I've shown that movie to someone who hasn't seen it, it's a great experience or like, it, it, this is hard to find because a lot of people have seen like Alien or Jaws or these moments that have these, they have these Oscar clip montage scenes that we all see a lot, even if we haven't seen that movie. So Almost everyone, I would guess, like in this country at the age of 30, a lot of people know you can't handle the truth. They know what the shot looks like, even if they haven't seen the movie. So to see, to like be with someone as they're watching it for the first time and see that earned moment, it still just knocks the wind out of me. I've seen that thing so many times and it still hits. So I love when those big cinema moments, like the chest buster scene in Alien, it just still freaks people out. It
1: still works. And to also bring it back to the credit that it is due, um, as much as uh, I do think that the movie is superior to the play, at the end of the day, it's the writing.
0: Yeah, exactly. It is.
1: The writing is the same.
0: The writing is the highlight of pr- pretty much every movie we're talking about here, I would say. I mean,
1: and performance, of course. Yep.
0: That's okay. That that kind of—this opens it up to a larger discussion, but a lot of the directors we're talking about here knew—I'm thinking of James Foley for Glenn Gary. I mean, a lot of people, casual people who like Glenn Gary would probably attribute that movie to David Mamet more than James Foley. A lot of people may not even know James Foley directed it. And that's because I think he wisely got out of the way. I think Mike Nichols knew when to get out of the way. Milos Forman, certainly Rob Reiner and say, let's let these words do the work for us. Yep. Let's let that fuel the performance. And that's why it works.
1: And then speaking of entertainment, um, nice segue into my other pick. So I chose Arsenic and Old Lace which is a movie directed by Frank Capra by the play uh, Joseph Kesterling wrote. And this movie came out in 1944. Uh, the thing that I think about this movie is that I cannot believe that this movie is, was allowed to come out because of the humor. It's essentially a, about a um, Cary Grant, and this is my favorite Cary Grant performance, too. He is this kind of bachelor guy who uh it doesn't um want to get married and he goes to his aunt's house to find that they have been um poisoning and killing guests and they hide them in different areas in the house and so he comes home and finds these dead people and is accusing his aunts and in the whole and there's uh there's a um a brother who lives upstairs who thinks he's Theodore Roosevelt. It's a complete outlandish farce, but grounded in dark, dark humor, and Cary Grant's physicality. His because um, it's all him. He's the one who's we're seeing him as the straight man because we're like, well, we should not feel this way, you know. This is this is evil what they're doing. But the tone of it from the ants is like, oh, it's fine. He, it's fine. <laughs> It's Cary Grant at his absolute best, and um, I just adore this movie. And you can see in the blocking how this absolutely was a play. Um, Right. Him running around the house, trying to catch his aunt, stop them from doing more things keeping other people at bay, not finding out. Don't look in the, don't look in the, uh, in, in the, in the room. Don't do this. Don't do that. No, no, no. Come over here. All of that. It's perfect.
0: Great choice. Great choice. Okay. So we have one more each and it's kind of the, it's someone we haven't mentioned yet. And we're purposely saving. You could say the best for last. I will start. We've each picked a film based on the work of Tennessee Williams. I'm going with a streetcar named Desire. My vote for favorite movie based on a play, uh, 1951, Tennessee Williams wrote it, won the Pulitzer for it in 1947, directed by Elia Kazan. It just hits for me in every way. I absolutely love Streetcar. I love what Brando did with it. He kind of, you know, there's, there's this thing I make up in my head about like Monty Cliff first Brando. They were friends. It wasn't a rivalry at all. They were different. But, you know, Clift had the search and Red River in 48 and then a place in the sun in 51 and you're seeing this very vulnerable sensitive guy and then Brando had that in Streetcar but he also brought in this like animalistic animalistic rage with yeah. it that really people just hadn't seen before it hadn't really existed
1: absolutely i think it would be a crime to have this podcast and not have that movie be referenced um, it very well could be, if you really wanted to say it, maybe the best adaptation from a play into a movie. Yeah, you're 100% right. Everything about that movie is just, it's hard to watch, but you can't turn away. You are so engaged and captivated in the mess of these lives, and um and I think the reason why we wanted to save this for last is because Tennessee Williams might be the most produced playwright in terms of how many movies came out based off of his work.
0: Modern, yeah, maybe. We're going to get to
1: someone else in a second. He, if he's not my favorite playwright, he's got to be right up there because I love all of Tennessee Williams' works. And so much so that like when I was picking a Tennessee Williams um, movie for this podcast, I just picked one at random. I have a box set of Tennessee Williams movies. I'm just going to pick, close my eyes and pick one, and I landed on the Night of the Iguana. Which is a great choice to just randomly (laughs) pick on. And uh, the the one thing I'll say about Night of the Iguana, uh, one of the things that I picked up for it is we're talking about writing so much. I just had a couple of quotes from the movie that um, I just think are amazing writing. Give them to me. So um, this is when Ava Gardner is is talking and – and she's like, he's just broke, spooked, and his good as fixed. And then I love this line. I was beating time with my cane, and then my cane slipped.
0: Yeah, poetry.
1: And Night of the One is a lot of fun. And I watched the commentary, not the commentary, the DVD special feature on John Huston trying to wrangle that cast to keep them together and not kill each other. Because you've got Richard Burton, Ava Gardner, um richard burton had his wife elizabeth taylor on set the entire time on location in not ideal conditions and it it never blew up he he kept everything under wraps and we get a great movie out of it
0: i mean if someone could kept a, se- a could keep a set in line it would be houston because like how can you do this tough guy like you can't really match houston and that movie is so distinctly john houston it's you're down in mexico sweating it out yeah richard burton's having a nervous breakdown like it's just it's just great and i love i love the antidote about taylor being there because they had just come off of cleopatra the year before which was one of the most disastrous productions in movie history and i, I had a lot of fun re-watching that for this before we get into a bigger tennessee williams discussion i did want to mention arthur miller really quick yeah neither of us picked works from him uh great playwright i my favorite movie, I don't know. I really love Crucible with Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, the Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman's great in it, but it looks more like a filmed play than anything. It doesn't really yep. have like yep. the blocking and the staging for me. Um,
1: it's a great example of how it doesn't work.
0: Exactly. So just shout out to Arthur Miller. We didn't, we didn't forget about him. Um, but yeah, Tennessee Williams. You said it earlier. So many movies have been based on his work. He even wrote some of them, but... I'll go through some of my favorites. I'm, I feel like I'm gonna list them all. Uh, the Rose Tattoo, Suddenly Last Summer with my boy, Monty Clift. The Fugitive Kind, Great Brando, Sweet Bird of Youth, Fantastic, Newman. Oh. Baby Doll, Oh my God. If you haven't seen Baby Doll, like yeah. I don't know how they made movies like this, but like how they were allowed. But yeah, he's shooting 10 for 10. The way that the directors handled the work, at least in the movies we're talking about, It it, it was an amazing run that helped define a really important era of classic American film.
1: Do you think that maybe there is a reason why so many movies worked really well at that time? Because theater was really alive back then? Like, Tennessee Williams was a star. Mm -hmm. There's not too many playwrights these days that are stars like that. And you just had, maybe it was an interesting... um, directors could just float because those were like the two biggest mediums
0: because a lot of those movies we're talking about we're talking about 50s and 60s actually like exclusively i believe 50s and 60s i think hmm, i don't know this would be this is probably a, a question for someone uh you know a little more a little older a little more mm-hmm. who maybe would have been around in that time I would blame some of it on the advent of television a little bit. Yeah. I think when television was invented and got in every home, people maybe started going to the theater less or maybe start stop. So th- my point is a lot of these movies came out before television was huge, not necessarily in the 60s. But it's like, I don't know, maybe people had it had such good clout from the theater, because if you look at the posters for these movies, it's like based on the smash play. And if you look at the poster for Closer, it doesn't say that.
1: No, it does not. Plays
0: aren't really... A movie isn't marketed by a play anymore. I mean, occasionally, like, Cats, I guess. But yeah, yeah, I mean, you just just don't hear them doing that. But back then, it's like, you need to come see Streetcar. The absolute Broadway sensation is finally on screen. You know, you have to come see... You will not believe what they did with Who's, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. You will not believe how they got it onto the screen. And that just doesn't really... I don't know that doesn't really exist anymore we're also this kind of goes into my next question which is um I wanted to also give another shout out to our boy William Shakespeare (laughs) because we didn't mention any of his movies and he is actually it's kind of a silly fact because it's so obvious but he is the most filmed author he has over like 400 feature films that have been based on his work that's insane I I did want to just for fun throw out our favorite movie based on a Shakespeare play. Yeah, This is a much larger conversation, but I, we've talked about this. I've had trouble with his cadence being adapted into film and you either get it or you don't. I really have to have a hard sit with it. It's just my brain. It is not a fault of the text or the film at all. I do not think a lot of movies get it right though. I'm not going to throw any movies under the bus. One movie that gets it really, really fucking right is Julius Caesar, 1953, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Um, it's Brando as Mark Antony, it's James Mason as Brutus, Lewis Calhoun as Caesar. Uh, it's a great one. I really, really love that movie, and I was very surprised at how hard it hit for me when I watched it.
1: I I, I agree with you. Um, I am a very, very big Shakespeare fan. I love him, but I do believe he 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 belongs in the theater. When you're when you're an audience member watching a Shakespeare play that's being done correctly you are in, because it's happening right in front of you, this actor's instrument, their body is alive. The rhythm of their heartbeat is matching the words. You don't even need to understand what they're saying because you feel it. And when you're watching a movie, you do not get that same transference. If anyone wants to talk about Shakespeare, I feel like you have to see it in theater in order to really appreciate everything that he is. That being said, if in my opinion if you are doing a shakespeare play i think you need to heavily rely on style i think style kind of covers up what you're not getting from experiencing it live in front of you with the language and um that heartbeat so i picked titus by julia Ju- julie taymore i it's actually my favorite shakespeare play it's so uh, violent and gross and like really, really, really fucked up. (laughs) But she sets it in this like really crazy, bizarre way where you're sort of just on board with everything that's going on. And the visuals are breathtaking and Anthony Hopkins, um, never better. Perfect Shakespearean actor.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, he's for contemporaries, he's gotta be one. I don't know who, who on earth would beat him but I don't hear a lot of people talking about that movie or that performance. Go check it out because he's he's a force in it.
1: Yeah. Good call. And and to, and to be clear, it's uh based off of the play Titus Andronicus is the Shakespeare play. Titus is the name of the movie.
0: Okay, great. So hopefully that gave you some good recommendations on movies that are based on plays and to end our show as we end every show with our namesake, what are you watching? This is you know, we can stay on theme and pick up movie based on a play or it's just anything we're watching.
1: So I am uh speaking of plays and coming from the world of theater, I'm watching a bunch of John Cassavetti's movies, rewatching them. And um my recommendation is Shadows. Nice. That movie is just a it, it's just a whirlwind of of jazz improv in terms of everything, how messy it is. Um it is also like when you're when you're when you're watching it, you don't really know what it is. And then it's over, and you're like, I love what I just saw.
0: And let me watch it again. <laughs> so
1: that's my pick, Shadows.
0: <laughs> yeah, we love Cassavetes a lot. One of the first conversations we ever had was about him. So, great pick. Um, I'm saying, for in, in the play theme, it is another movie I had no idea was based on a play until I researched this. That is Denis Villeneuve's Incendies. 2010. You got to go back and watch Incendies because after this movie, this is the movie that catapults him to the A-list. He after, His run after Incendies is as follows. Prisoners, Enemy, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, and Dune, which I think a few million people are excited about. Just go check out Incendies. It is foreign. You're going to have to read subtitles. It's worth every word. It's worth every letter. I don't even want to say much about it, but holy shit and great use of radiohead in a movie oh nice so thanks everyone for listening we hope we gave you some good recommendations some fun things to check out and we'll see you next time thank you hey everyone thanks again for listening you can check out my flicks and my movie blog at alexwithrow.com nicholas is where you find all of nick's film work Nikolai Ali does the music for our show. I've made a few music videos with Nick. He's a great guy and we love his tunes. Big thank you to him. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. Our next episode, Nick and I break down our most memorable movie-going experiences. We share a lot of fun personal stories. We're really looking forward to it. Stay tuned. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Nick? Alex? Uh, No, that that was lame. Let me start. Oh, I liked it.